Our scripture reading comes from Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my God and my, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the, high, are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. As we turn to the word this morning, would you pray again with me? Father, I ask that you would work the miracle that only you could work, that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts and give us life. I pray for those who are struggling that you would strengthen them by your word. I pray for those who are battling unbelief that you would grant them faith that they would hope in you. I pray that you would speak clearly to us, that we would understand exactly what you have for us to say and that you would move us from understanding to obedience. And I pray that you would bless us tremendously because we have humbled ourselves and listened to your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I began my message this morning, I'd like to ask each of you, and if I could look into your eyes, I would love to hear your answer. Why are you here? Why are you here this morning? Why are we here this morning? Perhaps you're, you're visiting here today, and maybe you came because you are searching, and, and maybe you don't even fully know what you're searching for. Perhaps you are here because you have been part of this church for, for a long time, maybe 60, maybe 70 years. And maybe you remember what God has done in the past and you hope that he will do it again in the future because you have been blessed. Maybe you love the people who are part of this church family and so even in this strange sort of socially distanced way, you're, you're here to just wave and say hello and celebrate that God has still called us together to be a church. Maybe you're here because your parents made you come. Probably everyone has a strange mixture of reasons, a, a sense of duty or obligation. Maybe some of you love music and you just love to sing and you're here to sing some songs that encourage you. Maybe you love people, but can I ask you, and this is the question that I'd like to ask you to search your heart to answer. Are you here hoping that God will change your life forever this morning? Not at some time in the distant future, but now. 
as we listen to his word, as we listen to what God has done in the past, are you hoping that you will be changed by God? You see, I believe that's the most important question that we can ask as a church because we might hope for revival. We might hope that God would bless the church in a general way. But if it doesn't start in my heart and if it doesn't start in your heart, it won't start anywhere. And so it's my prayer this morning that as we hear how God worked in the past, that you and I would be seeking him with our hearts to work in the present, now and forever. A few weeks ago, I began a series in the book of Ezra called God's People Revived and Rebuilt. And I believe that as we look through the book of Ezra, we can see God at work. And I believe that what we learn from Ezra is that when we humble ourselves and obey God's word, we can count on God's blessing. I believe that it is entirely possible that the best days of our church at First Baptist of Holly are in the future. I believe that we can seek God's blessing now, today, in this hour, by seeing how he worked in Ezra's day, even though it was 2,500 years ago, it doesn't change. You know, the funny thing about history is it doesn't become untrue with the passing of time. Things that happened still happened. And if this is how God works, then it's how he works now. And so my first message from, from this series in Ezra actually began in Daniel 9. I preached on how Daniel trusted in God's promise and that trust led him to pray and to confess the national sins of his people. Even though Daniel was a good man and he had not committed many of the sins that he was confessing, he recognized that Israel had national guilt and as a people, they needed to turn to the Lord. And friends, I would say to you, I believe that we as a people need to be grieved for our own sins, for the sins of our church, and for the sins of our nation. Sins of greed and materialism and immorality, hatred towards politicians and people we perceive as enemies, sins of fear, believing that things are out of control and that even God can't fix it, sins of rebellion in understanding what God has said and choosing to go a different way. And perhaps you hear this and you say, well, I'm not guilty. I've been trying to be faithful. But if the nation around us has walked away from God and we are not faithfully praying and faithfully loving, then we are not part of the solution. We are part of the problem. If we have tried to make sure that our families are safe and comfortable and we have a certain degree of happiness for ourselves with no concern for the world around us, we are not part of the solution. We are part of the problem. And I believe that God's work starts when God moves us to pray, when we are grieved like Daniel and we get on our knees and ask God for forgiveness and claim his promised blessings for us as a people. And so Ezra chapter 1 opens because God has stirred in his people's hearts. He has led them to trust in his promised blessing and faithful to his promise to the prophet Jeremiah. He has led them after 70 years of discipline and exile to return. He gathers them again and they are trusting that he will bless them. 
And I want to ask you this morning, has God stirred in your heart? Did you come to worship because you came to worship the living God who is at work in you? Have you understood God's promises to you? Do you enjoy peace while you are trusting in those promises? Are you excited about what God is doing in your life? I know that there is a lot of fear and uncertainty right now. Many here have taken pay cuts. Some have lost jobs. And many churches all across America have been struggling for decades. And yet in this moment of fear and anxiety, God is greater than those things. He loves you, and there is hope not just for you, but for all of us. Ezra 2 talks about as as God stirred in the hearts of his people to come back to his place to rebuild. It shows how the people were numbered, and they prepared to go and live in their homeland. And it showed two things. It showed first that they wanted to follow God's word perfectly, and second, it showed that they wanted to serve God together. And that even though Moses had lived a thousand years before Ezra, even though they had lived in different cultures for two generations, think the young people who were turning from Babylon had never seen Jerusalem. Even though they'd never seen it, they trusted in God's word and they obeyed together. Church, some have said that we live in a day when not all of God's word is relevant for us. Culture has changed, and they believe because our culture has changed that we should change with it and not listen to what God has said. But I believe that if we ignore God's word, we will not be blessed. We are not wiser than he is. Humanity as a whole has not grown closer to God. We have grown further from God. And so if we hope to see God bless us here in this place, it has to start with a careful listening to what God has said and a commitment to follow it. Today, after God has stirred in the hearts of his people, after they have obeyed his word, they begin by building an altar for worship. And on a human level, this is an odd choice. You might even call it dumb. I can only imagine the critics that Ezra had. You, know, you want to do what first? They had no military strength. They were few in number. They walked on foot 900 miles from Babylon to Jerusalem. They didn't even have guards to protect them. If you read a little bit later in the book as they were preparing to leave, the people were embarrassed to ask for protection because they thought asking Nebuchadnezzar for protection would demonstrate weak faith. And so they took all the treasures of the temple and carried them back to Jerusalem 900 miles on foot. And you would think the first thing that they would do would be to organize a patrol, to set up watchmen, and to rebuild the wall. They were surrounded by hostile enemies that were not pleased to see God's people returning to God's city. And yet they didn't do that. They do eventually rebuild the wall. That happens under Nehemiah's leadership a generation later. But first, they put their hope in God and they build the altar and the temple. Why? Because they put God first and it showed in the choices that they made as they gathered together again. They were keeping the first of the Ten Commandments to have no other God before God. And they demonstrated their commitment to obedience by building the altar. And so you see their priority of worship in in verses 1 and 2 of Ezra chapter 3. 
says when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. And then arose Jeshua, son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. You can see from these verses, the people of God were united. It wasn't just the priests. It wasn't just a few people that seemed to be especially religious. It was all of the people. To think about it in our own, in our own day, it wasn't just the pastors saying that worshiping God is important. Everyone had a desire to know God and to connect with God. And my prayer is that God would not just stir in one or two hearts, but that he would stir in all of our hearts, that we would have a hunger and a desire to know God as he can be known. Twice in our passage today, we'll see the phrase, as it is written in the law of Moses. They were careful to do what God had described that his people must do. And in order to do that, first, they built an altar. And if you read in the book of Exodus where the altar was first described, you discover basically the altar was a giant barbecue. If you've ever been to Mongolian Grill, they've got that monster grill. It was bigger than that grill. It was seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet. Multiple priests would have been making sacrifices around it. And the whole purpose was to offer burnt offerings. Now, there are some different offerings described in the book of Leviticus. Ezra mentions burnt offerings six times in the seven verses we're going to see today. So let's pause and think about what a burnt offering is. They say that they built the altar so that they could offer these. Well, what does it look like? Well, if you go to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 1 describes what a burnt offering is. And it could be a bull or a goat, or if you were poor, you could offer two birds. But either way, the burnt offering is the only offering that was entirely consumed while it was offered. The person who was bringing it, would lay a hand on the head of the animal and would cut its throat. And that might be disturbing to us today. Even hunters don't kill animals that up close and personal. But what was happening is Leviticus 1.4 says that the person making the offering would be atoned, that they would be at one with God, that their sins would be forgiven because they were offering a substitute for their guilt. And as the offering was slaughtered, it was cut in pieces and laid on the altar, and it was entirely consumed. This is an offering that held nothing back, that gave no benefit to the giver. Many of the offerings, and we'll talk about one of them in just a moment, were the beginnings of a party. The altar was not just like a grill in the sense that you burn things there. You could also cook things there and begin a celebration of unity with God and a friendship with the people around you. But this offering was entirely consumed. It's the picture of a substitute. See, the people had had God stir in their hearts. They wanted to know him. They, they wanted to be right with him. And yet they understood that their sins had caused them to be disciplined. And if they were going to be made right with God, that a substitute needed to take their place. A substitute needed to die because of their sin. And so they made the altar so that they could offer the sacrifice that would bear their sins on their behalf. They knew that because God had stirred in their hearts, it didn't mean he would continue to bless, but they had to follow his laws. 
Friends, I am so thankful that that is not how we worship today. The New Testament teaches that Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. That means no other sacrifice is required. He is the substitute that we need so that we can have peace with God. He is our atonement. And if we want God to move among us, our sins must be dealt with. Jesus died for our sins as God's perfect sacrifice. He willingly took our sins upon his own body and died in our place. I don't know each of your private lives and I'm thankful that you don't know mine. But the truth is, our sin must be dealt with. God knows. And you might try to change on the outside, but if you have never been forgiven, any change that you make going forward does no good. Your sins must be paid for. Your sins and my sins, whatever they are, they have been paid for by our substitute Jesus. That's true of individuals, that's true of churches, that's true of nations, that's true of our world. First John says that Jesus is the perfect substitute, not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. But the fact that they're paid for, the fact that the sacrifice has been made, it does us no good if we do not confess our guilt and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's also true of individuals and churches and nations. If we don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, if you've never said, I trust in you personally and followed an obedient baptism, you know, baptism is how a believer today identifies with Christ. Someone offering a burnt offering would put his or her hand on the head of the animal. Someone today wanting to recognize that Jesus is their sacrifice is baptized and says that I died with Christ and because Christ was raised, I will be alive again. If you've never been baptized, you've never said Jesus is my savior in a public way. And I would encourage you to recognize you need the forgiveness of sins and to follow in obedience, claiming what God has done for you. Because if we want to see God work, we need to make sure that our sins are dealt with. If we want to experience God's blessing, we need to celebrate the forgiveness of our sins. But not only do they do this to set up a one-time burnt offering, but they do it continually. Because what they recognize is that even though God is at work among them, they still sin and they still need forgiveness. And Christians, that's also true. Perhaps you've known the Lord for years, but the scripture teaches us to daily confess our sins and to daily give ourselves to God. You can think of passages like Romans 12, 1 that says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We do that not only once when we first come to Christ, not only weekly when we gather to worship, but daily as we seek to serve the Lord in our places of work and in our homes as we seek to worship him with our thoughts, our attitudes, and our actions. The people in Ezra's day had to go to a temple to offer an altar, to, to offer their offerings. We give them continually by seeking the presence of God in our lives. And if we want to experience God's blessing as a people, then we must give ourselves wholly to God. And some people believe that because Jesus has offered a once-for-all sacrifice for sin, that, that Christians don't offer sacrifices. But that's not true. The New Testament teaches that we give ourselves to the Lord because he gave himself for us. And so I want to encourage you to think, are you wholly dedicated to the Lord? Do the things that you do please him? 
Are you seeking to live your life not for yourself, but for your Savior who died for you and rose from the dead? Because if we want to see God bless us here together as a people, then all of us have to be given completely to the Lord. And it's my prayer that you would give yourself to the Lord again and again. They demonstrate their their continued obedience by not just beginning a system of sacrifice, but by continuing to faithfully follow the law. And so they, they not only have a priority of worship in building the altar, they have a priority of obedience. And I want to read verses 3 through 6 from Ezra chapter 3. Scripture says, They set the altar in its place. They even give a reason why. For fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Now, if you notice in a couple of those verses, it gives you the reason for what they're doing as being fear. They were afraid because they had many enemies. And our reasons for fear are not the same. And yet our hope is the same. They sought to worship the Lord faithfully because they trusted that God was their shield, that God was their protector. That if they put their hope in Him, that they would enjoy safety and security. And I believe that the safest place that we can be is at the center of God's will. Some of the people in our church have been serving as nurses, and they have been in great danger as they've come in contact with a virus that has killed many people. Some of our police officers who are seeking to be faithful in, in public service are continuing to put themselves in great danger. And if you serve as a Christian, I can't promise that God is going to spare your life. I don't know his plan for you, but I can promise that your soul will be safe as you trust in him. And that's not a concession. If God chooses to call you home, it's the greatest thing that could ever happen to you if you are right with him. For those of you, perhaps you're not serving in a public way. Perhaps your risk is somewhat low, but you're afraid because of the things that are happening in our nation. God is still on the throne. If you put your hope in him, nothing will harm you as you seek him with your life. And I want to encourage you, no matter where you're going, no matter what your future looks like, to make sure that you have settled with God where your faith is and where your hope is, and that you will give yourself to him again and again every day. That you will seek, like these people, to be faithful to do what God has written in his word for each of us. And one of the things that they do is they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I said some of the offerings they give, these are like parties. These are like the, the best of our church picnics. What the Feast of Tabernacles was is it remembered the time when God rescued his people who were slaves in Egypt and how they left Egypt, but they lived in a desert. And so they had to set up tents. They, they went on a 40-year camping trip. And God said, I want you to remember how I provided for you everything. You couldn't take provisions 
There was no way for them to have regular food or water. And again and again and again, God provided for them. He provided manna from heaven so they could eat. He provided water so that they could drink. And for every generation, he said, once a year, I want you to have a seven-day camping trip where you're going to set up a tent, you're going to live in a tent, and you're going to remember that I, your God, will provide for you. Regular sacrifices were part of this celebration because God reminded them again and again, the only reason we can be right with God is when a substitute takes our place and bears our sins for us on our behalf. But that begins a joyful relationship where God provides and God blesses. And so the fact that they are back in the land and they remember, wow, our our great, 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 great grandfathers were delivered by God from Egypt. And and this generation, they had been delivered by God from Babylon and they had had a new exodus and come from Babylon back to Israel. And so they're remembering God's ancient deliverance and they've also seen God's recent deliverance. Church, some of you have been around for generations. You remember the great things God has done 50 years ago. You love the fellowship that existed then. But I want to say God is gathering us again. We worship because Jesus rose from the dead. We are a church now because God is still doing great things and will still do great things. And our celebration is joyful. It's not just this morbid, our sins must be paid for so we're in constant grief. It's not just I must confess my sins so I can continue to be right with God. It's that God is blessing. God is giving good things. God is giving you hope. He's giving you a future. And so we regularly celebrate the goodness of God and what he is doing and what he will do as we trust him and as we obey. But I want to say there's a huge importance for regular reminders. It is so easy to forget how God has worked in the past. I've heard regular church members who were once enormously excited because they thought they heard God's voice very clearly And yet when things became hard just a few months or a year later, they said, Pastor, I must have been wrong. And they walk away and they leave. It's easy to forget what God has said. It's easy for me to forget how clear God has moved in my own life. Because I can be discouraged when I have a bad day, when I hear from someone who's angry. And yet to pause and reflect on what God has done, not just in ancient times, but in my life and in your life to remember regularly. Friends, that is why we have communion once a month. Because we want to remember, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you remember the moment when you first experienced the sweet forgiveness of God, the hope that God loved you so much that he gave his son to die for you, communion gives you a regular reminder of the cost of your salvation and the depth of God's love. It's not a morbid reminder. It's a precious reminder of God's love for you. And it's a chance to commit again to say, I belong to Jesus and he belongs to me. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. That God loves you that much. And it's a way to remember like an anniversary for a married couple. To pause and think about the day you committed to each other. Communion is a chance to pause and think about the time that you committed your life to God because you recognize that God had given his son for you. So the people in Ezra's day had been stirred, but they didn't want to forget the one-time stirring. You see, they they could have been living in Babylon and they could have felt the, the call of God and believed his promises. And at the first sign of an adversary back in Jerusalem, their hearts could have melted like water. They could have forgotten everything and they could have said, 
let's go back to an easier life where we've got a king and a walls and an army and, and we're safe. They could have put their hopes somewhere else, but a regular reminder of God's goodness helped them be faithful. Do not be discouraged because things are hard now. Regularly remind yourselves of God's goodness. He is still good. He will still keep his promises. That's what they do as they celebrate the Feast of Booths and, and, and the, the feast where they party and where they celebrate. It's good to celebrate the past. But let's also trust God for the future and remember the priority of building. So you can see in the very last verse that we read that said the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So in verse 7, it says that these people, they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and the food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So what they're doing is they're preparing to build the temple. They're putting in an order for building materials so that they can worship God the way God described. Now, I'm thankful that God did not command us as First Baptist Church of Holly to build a building. We already have one. He did command us to preach and make disciples. And the most important thing for us is to personally seek God, to learn from his word and to teach the word of God, to do exactly as it is written, and to strive to obey him daily. We need to put into practice the things that the word of God says. We need to plan to reach out to our community in ways that include proclaiming the gospel clearly. And there are practical details for that. Pray that we can do an awesome VBS this year. That's one of the great ways that we do share the gospel in our community. Pray that we can reach not just kids, but adults with the love of Jesus. At the end of the day, Holly needs Jesus Christ more than anything else. We love, later on, looking down into December, we'd love to do a downtown Christmas Eve service. Pray that people who don't attend church would want to come sing some carols and that they would hear the gospel and be saved and that the church of Jesus would be built. As they committed to build, the people of God gave sacrificially and many of you have given sacrificially and I am enormously thankful for that. But let me ask, do you have a heart to hear what God has said? Do you have a heart to know him well, to trust that he will do again and again what he has done for previous generations? Do you have a heart to be part of what God is going to do in a group of people here in Holly? And as we think about application and what this passage means for us, I want to ask again, has God stirred in your heart at some time? Have you been baptized? Are you regularly remembering his sacrifice for you? Are you offering up daily sacrifices of praise and obedience to live as a Christian? Church, the people in Ezra's day were united to do God's will. Can we say the same thing for us? Do we share a vision for our church? Or do we all bring different ideas of what we should do? Have we lost sight of what God says a church should look like? For individuals, at the beginning of this message, I ask the question, why are you here? Do you believe that God could change your life today? I believe that he could. I believe that he's at work now. We've seen how in scripture, a group of people 
committed to obey the word of God, to trust that the sacrifices that they made covered their sin, and, and to remember what God had done in the past? Do you trust that the sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient for your sin? Do you remember what he's done in the past and in, in our church and in your life? Will you now open your heart to him? Will you commit to obeying his word? Will you be part of what he's doing here? And being part of what he's doing here, that might be involved with prayer meetings. It might mean getting connected to a Sunday school. I guarantee it means seeking to know the word of God better. Will you regularly remember his sacrifice for you? Church, I, I don't have it written in my notes here. and it's, it's a little bit of a strange thing to be spread so far. I believe we as the people of God at First Baptist Church of Holly need a closer, tighter fellowship. That has to happen not just in Sunday services, but it has to happen in our fellowship outside of an hour-long service or an hour-and-a-half service. It has to happen outside of the Sunday school room. We need to know each other better and in a deeper way, and in a way that centers on who we are in Christ. We need to submit our homes, husbands and wives, to the things that Jesus says about our homes. We need to be faithful in teaching our children what it means to live Christian lives in 21st century America. And we need to be deeper connected to each other. Church, I want to call you to a commitment to seek the Lord, not just privately, but also publicly as part of our church. Will you commit to doing this together, to seeking God together? Would you pray with me? Father, Jesus said that you are always at work and we trust that you are at work now. And Lord, we don't know the future, but we are putting our hope in you. Lord, we want to obey your word. We want to understand it. I pray that you would help us. Help us know what our future will look like as a church and let us trust that as we are faithful to your word and your wisdom, that you will bless as surely as you did in Ezra's day. That as we give you our fears, you will calm our fears and give us faith. And I ask for your help in the name of Jesus. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.